Happy Sabbath, brothers and sisters. Here's our Sabbath story for Friday evening Vespers. It's titled, Ox Carts and Tigers. We left our hero and heroine in their near Rio de Janeiro in the county of Bahia. I, remember, I don't remember the name of the little town they moved to. Ox Carts and Tigers. We sat up with our son all that night. At dawn, I set out across the cobblestones to find a doctor. I wanted one I could trust, and if possible, one who spoke English, so that I could at least talk to him. The first person I reached was the Catholic lady who was teaching his Portuguese, and with her help, it wasn't more than an hour before I had found an American physician. He had lived in Brazil for many years, was delighted, he said, to be of service to an American missionary family. On the way back to our apartment, I told him Jack's symptoms. Dr. Downing nodded, well, let's hope I'm right, and it will not be so bad. Let us hope I'm right. Jack's fever was still high when we reached the apartment, and the doctor made his examination. Finally, he looked up with a smile and said softly, it is not bad, because we have reached him in time. Your son has malaria. How serious an attack is it? Jesse asked in a tone of quite non-professional motherly alarm. Well, rather severe, I'd say, but not too severe. The physician answered her quietly. Don't worry. We'll have him fixed up with a chocolate syrup that tastes like an American ice cream soda. And he'll never know there's quinine in it. In a few days, he'll be perfectly well. Will there be other attacks? My wife asked. He shrugged. There's always that danger, of course. Anywhere you go in a tropical zone, there is that danger. As long as you have quinine available, however, you can always bring malaria under control. And there's no reason for a recurrence, actually. Oh, unless. The doctor looked around at our apartment, then he turned back to us. For your safety and your son's, you will have to get out of this place at once. He went on to explain. Old buildings like this one are infested with malaria mosquitoes. They breed in the walls and in cracks of the rotting plaster. That means your son will be reinfected and each time the attacks will be more severe. He told us we must move to some place near the ocean where the air would be largely mosquito-free. We knew we must follow his advice, otherwise we would have to give up our missionary dream and return to the United States. Finding new living quarters in a matter of days at most seemed an insurmountable problem. We knew neither where nor how to look, but whenever there was a need, there was one source of supply. We asked his help. Soon we found what we wanted, a lovely house outside the city itself, overlooking the beach and the ocean at a price that was within our limited financial reach. Tabusa, our Mia Preta, moved with us, of course. Jack's malaria vanished almost at once and did not come back. In the midst of our personal problem, we had not lost sight of the work we had come to do. Our church group in Salvador was expanding. We planned to start forays into the backwoods regions and farmlands. We decided first to follow our book salesman who had already started at least some interest in Adventist literature and beliefs in the more remote areas of the territory. One trip we planned was lengthy and difficult journey up to South Francisco River to a community far back in the hinterlands. Most of it would have to be made on horseback, muleback, or by canoe. 
I delayed leaving for this work, however, because Jessie was pregnant. She herself wasn't worried, but I refused to leave until our second child was born. Marion, as we called our daughter, arrived on August 22, 1922. Less than a year after we had reached Brazil, she had always been our little Brazilian, and although she is an American citizen, she can also, if she wishes, claim citizenship in the land of her birth. Shortly after her arrival, I left my little family in the care of Tabusa and started on this long postponed evangelistic journey to a remote area hundreds of miles in the interior. One of the reasons for the trip was a request for help which had reached us by letter from a group of people living far out on the banks of the Corrente River. Corrente River. I don't know if I'm saying that right. In the southwest corner of the state of Bahia. What? they had heard of our faith appealed to them. Could we send an evangelist? So we started out. Since I did not yet speak the language well, I took Gustavo Storch to serve as my interpreter and assistant. From Baia, we traveled for two days by train across the state through treeless, bleak farmland. The locomotive burned wood, <laughs> and as we chugged along, black smoke poured out of its stack. Sparks flew regularly in every direction. We had been warned to wear old clothes, and we were glad we had heeded the advice because our good clothes would have been ruined by the smoke, even if they had not been harmed by the embers. With a sigh of relief, we arrived two days later at the tropical river village of Guaziro, Guaziro on the banks of the São Francisco River. Here, while we waited for the steamer, which was to take us up the stream to its junction with the smaller Corrente, we spent most of our time trying to get the ashes and the smell of smoke out of our clothes and hair. The boat was a curious vessel. It was long and wide, and as tall as a three-story house, not too different from the river boats which plied the Mississippi in the middle of the 19th century. The San Francisco is one of the few large rivers of the world that flow north. So we were heading south as we made our way slowly upstream stopping at almost every village along the way. There was little refrigeration on board and no place to keep fresh meat in that hot, humid world. Every day or so, a new steer purchased at one of the villages on our way was slaughtered for food. The drinking water was simply dipped out of the river and was neither filtered nor boiled. It took us 19 days on this boat to reach the Corrente, two days more by a smaller boat, and 30 days after we had set out, we arrived at Porto Velo, a community which had asked for our help. The village name means Old Port. It consisted of only a scattering of houses, many with palm-thatched roofs and bare mud walls. But the people seemed delighted that we had come. We, agreed, we agreed to hold a series of meetings for them and to tell them the meaning of the love of Christ for them and for all people everywhere. This was always the first message that we tried to bring to people, that they should put their trust in God and in Christ as the Son of God and in the word of the Bible itself. Our message is one of love, not fear, of forgiveness for the repentant, not despair or brimstone. Our first meeting started out well. We had found a large room to serve as a meeting hall, and in its center, we set up a powerful kerosene pressure lamp to provide light. By meeting time, 
hall was crowded with men and women, some Indians, but most of them Brazilians of Portuguese extraction. Suddenly, as we were about to announce the opening hymn, one of the women screamed, jumped up, and ran down the improvised aisle and out of the building. I don't know what's the matter, my assistant said to me under his breath. Shall we stop the meeting to find out? We'd better try to keep going, I suggested. But before we could get our hymn started, several other women had jumped up and ran out, and soon they were streaming out in droves. The reason, when we discovered it, it was incredible. Frogs, not by hundreds, but by thousands, had invaded our meeting place and were leaping off the walls and over the seats, trying to get to their powerful kerosene lamp by which we had lighted the hall. Oh my goodness. It was a real invasion. The frogs, two or three inches long, came from every direction. They leaped over anything that stood in their path. Some climbed high on the walls and then attempted a broad jump in the direction of the light only to land on a woman's hair or skid down the back of her neck. And though many of them were pioneer women and used to primitive conditions, they reacted to frogs just as the ladies back home would react to mice. Our first meeting, which we had had pretty well organized, we thought, wound up a shamble. But we had learned, as we were constantly doing, by meeting time next night we had the frog problem licked with draperies across the windows. We stayed for two weeks in the little village of Porto Velo, but before we left, we had the nucleus of a new church group organized and underway. We began our most serious work, often in the midst of a comedy of errors. We had arranged our return trip so that we could get back to the San Francisco River in time to catch the big river steamer on its return trip. Our timing, I guess, was just a shade too good. The ship was already in port when we arrived. I climbed on board, but my assistant, who had a badly sunburned arm, stopped a moment at a drugstore for some Vaseline. By the time he reached the dock, the ship was pulling out onto the stream. I hurried to the captain to tell him my companion had been left behind and to ask if the boat could possibly stop and pick him up. That's what I meant to say at any rate, but in my excitement and with my poor Portuguese, I used the wrong gender. To the captain, I was saying that my lady companion had been left standing on the dock. The captain smiled a wide understanding smile, pulled a cord and shouted an order. The ship stopped, the mighty stern wheel went into a reverse spin, spraying tons of water on the decks, and we backed up to the deck to take on my assistant. When the captain saw who it was he had backed up for, he was decidedly put out. I thought he said his girlfriend, the captain told my assistant later. If I had known it was a man, I would have let you rot on that dock. <laughs> oh my dear. My bad Portuguese had at least kept my friend from being sunbaked uh, for a long sunbaked wait on my second trip to the San Francisco. Not long thereafter, I went alone. I went in answer to an invitation from another group of people who had heard of our work and they were interested in it. They lived in a region even farther in the interior, many miles beyond where we had preached before. There was no roads and no river transportation and the only way to reach this place after we left the river itself was overland on horseback, along trails to the tropical rainforest. Riding horseback was nothing new to me after my Nebraska upbringing, but the Brazilian saddle, which is like the English saddle in the United States, was new to me and difficult. For this part of the journey, I had hired a guide, and since there were two other men going to the same remote community for other purposes, we were a party of four. Because we did not wish to delay our journey, we traveled at night. We had not gone far into the woods when my guide gave a warning. 
I had studied my Portuguese hard in the previous weeks and understood him completely. We were to stay close together as he had seen two jaguars, Brazilian tigers, following us. The tigers were on the far side of the clearing just behind us, he said. I'd like to get a shot at one of those overgrown cats, one of the two strangers told the guide. When we get to another clearing, you stop on the other side, and when those tigers show themselves, I'll let one of them have it. We will all be torn to shreds if you try it, the guide said quietly. Why? Are those tigers stronger than my bullets? There are two of them. That means they are probably mates. The experienced guide explained patiently. They probably have their young hidden somewhere nearby in the woods. That's why they're following us. They're protecting their young. But I, I don't see... If you shot the female, the male would attack in the smoke of your shot. You leave them alone. They'll stop following us after a while when they decide the danger is past. They're smarter about that sometimes than humans. The stranger put away his revolver and we rode on. We did not see the tigers again. I reached my destination and for a few days was immersed in a holding meeting. As I got ready to leave, elated, the Lord had prospered my work. I learned that two men from the village were planning a trip at the same time. Not anxious to start out alone, I arranged with them to take me overland and then by chance, and then sorry, then by canoe, down to where I could catch a San Francisco River streamer. steamer. At that time of the month, the moon was full, and the two men suggested that it would be better to travel by night when we reached the stream. In this way, they said we would avoid the hot sun. They were strangers to me, and I was not eager to travel alone with them at night. But as their plan sounded sensible, I agreed. So we set out at night, the three of us, down the stream in a small canoe. I sat in the center with one man at either end of the craft. It was a beautiful night. The full moon shone bright, and the little stream was like a narrow silver ribbon. We had not gone far when one of the men drew out a loaded revolver and put it on the suitcase before him. And he drew out a knife. Mister, he called to me across the canoe. Are you armed? In all my travels, I never carried a gun or a weapon of any kind. Oh, my goodness. Excuse me. I'm getting bothered. Okay, that should stop that. I should have done the do not disturb before I started reading. Sorry. Um... In all my travels, I never carried a gun or a weapon of any kind. Now I hesitated for a moment, not sure how to answer him, and then I remembered I had a Bible in my pocket. Paul mentions in his letter to the Ephesians that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Yes, I answered, I am armed. He appeared slightly startled, but he made no reply. We continued on downstream. Soon, however, the moon disappeared under thick, dark clouds. There were so many logs in the stream that our journey was hazardous even in the moonlight but now with this light gone traveling became almost impossible at least this was what one of the men told me we would have to pull to the bank and make an improvised camp for the night he said i didn't much like the idea but apparently i had no choice the bank of the stream was high and muddy as we came close the men in the front of the canoe did a strange and as it proved utterly foolish thing he picked up a pole which was in the canoe and stuck it into the mud of the bank and literally pole vaulted to land the whole thing happened so quickly that I had no time to warn him this was dangerous. I saw his dark form swing past me out of the canoe toward the bank, and as he struck the ground, I heard a shot and a terrible cry of pain. The other man cried out, Bandits, we've landed in the midst of a bunch of bandits. You'd better get out your gun now and get out of this boat. But I hesitated to make any move yet, and so did he. We sat in the canoe for an instant and heard nothing more. 
Then we edged our boat in closer and leaped to the bank. We found our companion a few feet away, lying half in the mud. He was conscious and told us he had been shot through the foot. We had landed actually not in an abandoned hideout, but in a spot where animals, deer, tiger, and tapir came down from the forest to drink. A hunter had set his snare so that an animal would be shot when he tripped the string across the path. He had caught a man instead who now lay bleeding on the ground. We had not yet begun our medical missionary work. I had no medicine with me except iodine and aspirin tablets, but I knew enough at least to give him first aid. I tore up one of my white shirts and made bandages, dosed the wound with iodine, bound it up the best that I could, and together the other man and I made a bed on the ground and put the wounded man on it. As we were in woods where we knew jaguars were plentiful, we were afraid at first to go to sleep. Then I recalled that I had with me and my belongings the pressure kerosene lamp that I used for my meetings. We got out the lamp and lit it, and with that light we were able to collect enough wood to light a fire. This, I reasoned, would keep away the tigers and give us a chance for rest, but as we dozed off, the wounded man began to moan with pain. I got up and went over to him, and I discovered that an army of black ants, attracted by the blood, had spermed over his injured foot. Some had even got under the bandage and had begun to eat the lacerated flesh. I got the man under a mosquito net covering, I put on a fresh bandage, and finally got my folding cot out of the canoe and put him on that so that the ants could not get at him again. At last, it was dawn. We got the injured man back into the canoe and on down the river to the village where I was to board the steamer. Here, we found a pharmacist who removed the shot and cleaned the wound. The iodine I had put on the first night before, he said, had helped to prevent infection. My first patient would be all right. Later that day, I waited for the river steamer. Some of the people who had heard what had happened told me how close I had come to death. Both my traveling companions were known as exceedingly dubious characters. <coughs> Sorry. I'm going to drink. The police of this village would not even allow them to stay in town. I was inclined to believe them, since they also told me that people used to the river as these two men were could travel it under all circumstances, day or night. They were going to that embankment for one purpose, to kill you, rob you, and leave you for the tigers to dispose of. One man explained succinctly, you were exceedingly fortunate that they picked that particular spot and that the first man tripped over the snare. I thought of the words I have read so many hundreds of times in the book of Psalms. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Once I was traveling through a district in southern Baia where large quantities of cacao chocolate bean are grown. Several associates and I were on our way to hold a meeting in a church and were riding mules I had hired for the occasion. I was in front. As we reached the outskirts of the town of Itabuna, I noticed a young girl leaning out the window watching our group. I glanced up at her and just at that moment my mule plunged into a mud hole. He began to jump and buck violently and I was hurled off his back and into the mud. As I got out of the mud hole, thoroughly disgusted, I began to wipe some of the primordial ooze off my face and clothes. The girl at the window called down to me in Portuguese, Oh, mister, do that again. My mother didn't see it. <laughs> it was one of the most fascinating times of my life, those early years in Baia. The country was new and strange. So was the way of life of its people. At that time, Jesse usually stayed in the city to take care of the children. 
and I traveled widely throughout the state with one or two assistants. As we would come into a community, the people would welcome us and invite us to dine. Sometimes we would have beans and rice and sweet potatoes, the sweet potatoes fried, boiled, and sliced, or candy. We might also have a coarse cabbage called kuva, which is usually boiled. Dessert was often fried banana, and when there were the plantains, which I considered the most delicious of all the varieties of banana found in Brazil, I always took a second helping. After sunset around 7.30, we would usually hold our meeting. It might last an hour or an hour and a half, and much of it would be a song service. The Brazilians love to sing. Many of them have truly fine voices. Then there would be a short message, perhaps, and prayers. After the meeting, we would go to the home where we were spending the night. It was often the house where the meeting was held. And we would sit around and talk. A few of these people always wanted to hear something about the city and what was going on that was new and exciting. The world loves to gossip a little, even in the backwoods of Bahia. Around 10 o'clock, we would go to sleep in our hammocks. In the morning, as soon as it began to get light, life would begin anew. Most of our first years in Baia, Jesse worked with other women in the community, helping to build up our congregation. We had two churches in Salvador when we left, both going strong. Jesse also continued to do her midwifery work, but she decided finally that her time and energy might be better spent in other ways. As the children grew older, we found good people to look after them. Jesse became a little freer. Eventually, she decided to take a trip into the interior with another lady of our church on a selling tour of Adventist books and magazines. Perhaps she envied me my adventures. In those days, ladies did not travel alone, and this tour of theirs was nothing short of revolutionary in that part of the world. Everywhere they went, they were asked hundreds of questions. When Jessie would tell them she was married to an Adventist minister and a missionary, they would look at her with redoubled interest. This unique book-selling junket was all Jessie's idea, and perhaps it would be well to let her report it in her own words from the notes that she wrote down sometime after she returned to Salvador. Everybody was very surprised to see us because ladies in those days weren't supposed to travel alone. We had a lot of big medical books with us, and we knew the stores would sell these because they told people how to keep well. Anything about health down here is always welcome. We hired a native to carry the books for us, at least a sample of them, in a high pile on top of his head. He would walk in front of us with the books on his head, and the people would stare at him and then at us, and they would say, What have you there? We would tell them these were medical books, and we would always sell some. In one house where we stayed for some time, we always stopped with members of our church. I told the lady I wasn't used to sleeping in hammocks, and she said it was all right, I could sleep on a table. She put a tablecloth first, and then it did make it a little softer, but not much. We would roll up Turkish towels and put them under our hips, and then it was not too bad. Hmm. Wherever we went, people would ask us all kinds of questions about ourselves. When I told them I was married, they wanted to know how many children my husband and I had, and they never could understand why we had only two children. Because in Brazil, everyone has a big family. But they were always interested and kind to us. They treated us well, and they bought books like hotcakes. On our first trip, we spent 10 days in the hinterlands of Bahia. There was never any trouble except with one poor man who could not seem to understand what we were doing. I was keeping my books stacked up in a store in a village, and every time I'd stop in to pick some up, he would come after me and put his face close to mine. Finally, I looked at him and I said, Did you know the Lord is coming soon? 
It's just marvelous what the Bible tells us, isn't it? He gave me a scared look and went out of the store. I never saw that tall man again, but years later, my husband went to that same town and stopped at that store. There was a tall man there, and when he learned that my husband was an Adventist, he told Leo, A long time ago, there were two Adventist ladies here, and one of them was an angel. Our mission work in Baya grew into a complex organization with two churches in the city itself and many smaller groups in the province. We were well known by that time. We had many friends among all groups. Many of them, even those not of our faith, gave us financial help, and thus we were able to aid more needy families in some of the poorer sections and to carry on the other work of our mission. But our eyes still looked to the north toward our ultimate goal, the Amazon. In 1927, our mission sent to its first sent its first emissaries to the river, Elder John Brown and his wife. Elder Brown made a number of important contacts on his several trips to the interior, but because he had to depend on river boats to get from place to place, there were many areas that he could not reach. The going was rough even so, and within a few months he was stricken with a terrible tropical sickness. He had to return to the United States to recuperate. So in 1928, three of our top division officers made a courageous and a grueling trip to the headwaters of the Amazon and back traveling through difficult country by boat and by muleback. On their return, they agreed that our church must begin at once extensive missionary activity throughout the river world. So in November of that year, I received word from our division directors in Buenos Aires. Jesse and I were to prepare at once for a new assignment. It would involve drastic changes. We would have to prepare for an entirely new kind of life, get rid of most of our furniture, tear up the roots we had sunk deep into the soil and soul of the Bias mission and its people. But what lay ahead for us was new and different and challenging. The letter said we were to go to Belém, the city that lies at the mouth of the Amazon, and I was to begin work as director of a new mission that reached across the jungles, across the continent of South America to the Andes themselves. This was our new assignment, mine and Jesse's, the vast sprawling outreach of the Amazon. And so we will close our story for now. And next week, next Sabbath, is titled Doorstep to Nowhere. So, have a blessed Sabbath, brothers and sisters, and I will see you with another story next Friday.